Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Everyone, it's Reed. These next several episodes are going to be dedicated to the study and illustration of the white Christian evangelical movement in America and what it means for our politics. We've got some experts, some very thoughtful people, some authors who are all going to help us walk through exactly what's going on, how this church operates, and what it means for our democracy. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did interviewing. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Charlotte. He is a professor of creative writing and the Frederick Sessions Beebe, 35, professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth. His writing and photography have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, and Vanity Fair, for which he is a contributing editor. He's written quite the catalog of books, including his latest, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, available wherever fine books are sold. And I had Jeff on the show last year to talk about it. It is definitely worth the read, everybody. Jeff, welcome back. Hi, Reed. Good to be with you again. So, Jeff, your book touches on a fair amount of this, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time with you setting the scene as we're now in 2024 about the Christian nationalist movement. It could be called the white Christian nationalist evangelical movement, the evangelical movement, the white evangelical movement. It's got all sorts of different combinations of names. But, you know, I wanted your experience and your reporting, especially out of the last book, to give us a sense of, you know, as you traveled the country for that, as a quick recap, what you saw this very virulent, I'm going to call it, but very well-resourced and relentless portion of the American electorate, what is the stuff that it's made of? I've been covering the intersection of right-wing politics and religion, which in the United States is mostly Christianity and, and mostly evangelicalism for about 20 years. And I think the biggest misconception right now, and it's always been there, is this idea that Christian nationalism what we used to call the religious right or fundamentalism, somehow represents old-time religion, that this is a backwards way of thinking. And the problem with that, besides just being factually wrong, it may be backwards, but it's not old-time. It's, it's a rapidly evolving, mutating political theology, is that it lulls people into this kind of reassurance narrative of, I already know what that is. And they kind of imagine the dumbest preacher they ever saw on TV or the righteous gemstones or something like that. And they think that they know what it is. And the danger for us now, especially in 2024, when, you know, in 2016, would Trump harness the Christian right? 2020, how big would it be? 2024, it's all in. And it's not the same thing that it used to be. So the assumptions that we have on how to push back, on who to count in this movement, on who it can harness, all those are off. And I think traveling around the country, what I saw was especially as a person comes from a religious studies background, interested in the history of religions, I saw a vast religious movement in flux 
This is something that is moving. This is not stagnant. This is not just old fashioned. This is something that is reimagining itself for Trumpism. Well, and you noted in your book that in some of the places you went, some of the churches you attended, I think there was one in South Florida where it was basically like the church of capitalism or quick money. And then in other places, they basically gotten rid of the cross as a symbol altogether. And maybe they had crossed swords or some other you know, medieval weaponry, or there's no theological symbolism whatsoever, but American flags as far as the eye can see. And there's the ones that have gone beyond the American flag and the churches that are flying the Gadsden, the don't tread on me and the uh, the all black American flag. That church in Florida, a church called Vu, and um, you wouldn't even think of it as political. It's the pastor who performed the wedding of Kanye and Kim. It's Justin Bieber's pastor. And I had, again, I've been writing about sort of right wing religion for a long time. So I was able to see that this kind of glamorous church, it was in Miami, the Miami Art District. It was a whole young, beautiful, affluent people. There was no explicit politics. This was the old political project of there's something called the prosperity gospel. And this is an old idea that God wants you to be rich. And the way that God shows that he wants you to be rich is that he makes the pastor rich. Well, the pastor of that church is a guy named Rich Wilkerson. He had a reality show called Rich in Faith in which you see him driving his pumped up car and his penthouse and everything else. But there is a kind of narrative of deserving and undeserving, right? And prosperity gospel was once upon a time, mostly lower income folks. This is a prosperity gospel for people who are already prosperous, the rich getting richer and the imagination that you too can join those ranks. That was a little bit before Trump, but I say, hey, this is actually flowing. This is part of what I call the undertow, these currents that are pulling us and, and forming this right-wing thing so that you get to the point of after 2021 traveling around, as you say, you know, you said swords or other weapons. I went to a church in Northern California, mini mega church. The pulpit's made of sword. They don't have the cross. They don't think the cross is appropriate for this time of war theology. I thought that was an outlier. That church had its militia, its own militia. And I discovered that it's not alone. And then I was in Michigan and I came across a church where the pastor teaches young people how to make swords, battle axes, maces. It's sort of like this D&D cosplay, except that, wait a minute, this is actually theology. They're moving from the theology of the lamb to, you know, a really snarling, aggressive lion, a war theology. So it's interesting you say that because as soon as you said lamb, you know, I saw a, one of those license plate holders the other day that said lions, not lambs. And I started thinking about it, you know, and if you put it in a literal context, Jeff, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Lions. Yeah. The king of the jungle, whatever. But like, you know, lions, it's like the males show up for mating season. They have cubs. The men wander off. <laughs> right? They eat a gazelle and they sleep under a tree on their back. And the females, they run the prides. Right. They do the hunting. It's just one of those things where I just like if you just even took just a step back from the ridiculousness and even in even in lion world. Right, Jeff, the community's a bell curve. Right. There's going to be somebody who's at the top and everybody else is going to be on one side of it or the other. Like it doesn't make any sense. Like everybody has to be this tough guy or gal you know, armored up literally or figuratively. Now you see down in Texas. The armor right of God, now, yeah. Right, the army of God down in Texas. Oh, I was thinking of the armor of God, which is a verse, and you see more, more and more often. You also see something called the battle verse, which is Joshua 1.9 from the book of Joshua. And some folks will remember that on uh, January 5th, before January 6th, it was something called the Jericho March. And, 
you know, if, if you know your Bible study, you know what Jericho is, or maybe just have a vague memory. Oh, that's right. They marched around seven times and they blew their horn and hooray. And they forget. It's a really complicated book. It does not lend itself, the book of Joshua, to literal reading, because what does God say to Joshua? He says, go into Jericho and kill every man, woman, and child inside. Kill them all. You don't want to take a little reading of that, but right now you see folks wearing t-shirts that say Joshua 9, militia gear with Joshua 1-9, AR-15s inscribed with Joshua 1-9, with a kind of, I mean, and again, it's cosplay until it's not, right? And it's easy to say, yeah, but they're not shooting. But if you're putting a genocidal ambition on your gun, we've got to pay attention. Well, and again, I am not a religious studies scholar. I was half Jewish, so I went to Hebrew school till I was 12, and then I went I'm to an proud Episcopal high school. proud half Jew as well. All right, so, you know, we don't belong, we belong to everybody and no one at the same time, Jeff. But let me ask you this. I mean, a lot of the rhetoric, and I'm going to call it rhetoric, is really more Old Testament in nature, but they clothe Jesus in it. Well, my half Jewish friend, I'm going to disagree. First of all, I'd say- That was my sense of it. That's why I'm no, glad I know, here. I know, and I know. And I think this is where there's sort of like this breakdown between evangelicals who do know that, I mean, they know their Bible usually, not all of them, especially not the ones in Washington. They really don't. I mean, there's so many of those sort of, Mike Johnson does, but a lot of these guys don't. But, you know, we speak of the Old Testament or, or the Hebrew Bible, as, as we Jews like to call it. It's not, it's not old for us as being more vengeance oriented. But, you know, you only have to go back. There's a, I'm trying to remember if it was 68, I think 1968, the National Prayer Breakfast, which is held every year. Mike Johnson, for the first time this year, just moved into the Capitol Rotunda. This is not, by the way, a public event. This is a Christian nationalist event. Billy Graham was a speaker in 1968, and he is really all in on the Vietnam War. Some people will remember Billy Graham. They think, wasn't he a nice old guy? He was the guy who said, let's nuke him. And he says, hey, I want you, U.S. government, to remember that Jesus says, I come not to bring peace, but the sword. That there is a very violent tradition of Jesus that you can draw on. And you hear, I went to a church, another militia church in Omaha, Nebraska, presided over by a guy who's sort of a rising star in that world, Pastor Hank Kuhneman. You see him on a show called Flashpoint, which to your listeners means nothing, but it's a show notable enough to be able to get an appearance by Trump. And he talks about Jesus appearing to him in combat fatigues and a tight white t-shirt. And there's something always weirdly kind of homoerotic. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's describing his bulging muscles. And then he's talking about, he's got armed men around the church. I thought they were off-duty cops. They were just full-on militia gears with full-on riot gear and so on. And he's taking, reinterpreting that psalm that it doesn't matter if you a religious person or not. We all know Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they come for me, right? He says, that rod, that rod, rod is a gun. And you're like, no, no, it's not. It's a shepherd. It's a shepherd. But to him, the shepherding is that of a gun. So he's taking this and said, this is what Jesus is. And I should say also in the United States, there's, uh, it gets wonky, but there's an old tradition goes back to the late 19th century muscular Christianity. And it begins in the British empire. And they're suddenly worried. Men aren't going to church anymore. They think church is for women. And women are soft. And how are these guys, if they go to church, they won't be ready to win the empire. So we need to do away with the soft, sweet Jesus. And now we bring in the warrior Jesus. And that gets rebooted over the decades again and again and again. There was a fad maybe 20 years ago after Braveheart of evangelical wives gifting their husbands broadswords to restore their biblical manhood. 
I visited the office of Tony Perkins, who was the head of the Family Research Council in Washington. And there in the corner, he's got his broadsword. I mean, these are not folks who are reading Freud, so they just, I don't even think they've occurred to them that a woman giving to a man a sword and saying, here, honey, wield over me, it's all pretty pervy, but it's also this kind of eroticized violence. And I think about this, there's a German historian named Annika Broxman. She's a real great scholar of the contemporary German right, which I think listeners should know is what's happening here is happening there too. And that gives us cause for concern because we can't count on saner heads elsewhere cooling things down here. But she talks about the sort of the militant eroticism of the resurgence of the German right. She studies the American right too. She says like this back and forth of hyper-masculinity, you know, the bodybuilder right, not to smirch bodybuilders, but that kind of the, the Uberman kind of thing. And then you make that a Christian ideal. That's an old thing that's becoming a new thing. And it's, you know, just as, as an aside, you know, this whole idea. Now, you know, the Jews, no idols, right? Jews don't do idols. But the Christians, you know, they've always had the cross and they've had the pictures of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and everybody else. But now the idolatry, you know, like you talk about Jesus in the tight T-shirt. I mean, he was a small, I assume, relatively small bearded Semitic man, right? Like, and that's the other part, too, is like, God forbid, right? Like, I don't know what the difference was, you know, from a, an ethnic composition 2,000 plus years ago, Jeff, between a Jew from a small town and an Arab someplace else, right? It, probably a lot of overlap, if not significant overlap, right? So it's always funny that like he's, he's this white guy with the beard. Very little overlap, though, with a blonde, blue-eyed Northern European. Zero overlap there. Right. Yeah, for sure. But the idolatry, too, though, is in whether or not that's in the symbol of a sword or an AR-15. And, you know, in some of these members of Congress, right, they, they wear like you know, they're starting to look like Mar Marshall Zukov, right, on their on their lapels, right? They've got like an American flag, the crossed AR-15s, the cross, right? And they're telling you everything they need to know. And that's right there, right? Just within, you know, two or three square inches. Well, you see there the theological transformation too. And here here's an area where, you know, no idols. And for a long time, I, I actually argued that full-fledged fascism wasn't possible in the United States precisely because of Christian fundamentalism. And, you know, people should remember Christian fundamentalism is not always right wing and hasn't always been right wing. You go back to the Scopes monkey trial. Everyone knows that. And we sort of think of that backwards William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan, who was a fundamentalist, was objecting to the idea of evolution because it, then it was being presented as a defense of eugenics. And he says, this is going to go badly. He was right. He was wrong about evolution, but he was right about how it could be abused. So. That kind of fundamentalism, I thought, would stand in the way of the cult of personality, which is necessary for what we really want to describe as actual fascism, if we're just not using the term in a loose way. And I used to say, look, they can't do that. And I'm, I'm talking about, I wrote a book called The Family about a group called the Fellowship Foundation. After World War II, they were recruiting actual Nazi war criminals. And yet they still weren't fascist because they said, hey, if you will switch out the Fuhrer for the father, you can't worship a worldly person then you can be part of our club, right? And you can be redeemed. Donald Trump proved me wrong. And I think that was a really fascinating thing. And I think Donald Trump, and it surprised a lot of people within the Christian conservative world too. So we see these outliers like Russell Moore sometimes from the Southern Baptists. We hear from him a lot. He's not really representative of a large movement. He's holding true to an older theology that no matter how conservative it is, says, hey, 
we don't put a person before Christ. Trump has managed in a really complicated way. I don't think he fully understands what he did. But the movement itself has managed to make him a kind of wobbly, blurry double for Christ. We see that on the t-shirts. We see it in the memes. We see it in the jokes. But we also see it if you go and you start reading these texts of you know Trump as a God-anointed candidate. Right. Well, and, and Russell Moore, who we'll hear more about in the next couple of weeks, uh, we should note, I think it's important, Jeff, here, that like Moore's apostasy from this movement does not mean he's any sort of liberal. He is, and he's a conservative guy, but at least I think he believes in what he believes, and he says, and that's not what I believe because that's not why I'm here, right? He might be anti-gay marriage, pro-life, all those other things that maybe I disagree with personally, but he has held fast to these are the things I believe, and following this level of you know insanity and saying that guy's handed down by God ain't the way this is supposed to go. Well, yeah, and I think he represents to me something that, again, why I thought fascism wasn't possible, and I would always sort of defend to my lefty and liberal friends. I would say, look, there is a consistency and a coherence in even this conservative theological tradition, which I disagree with a lot of. But I think about when I'm writing about the Fellowship Foundation, which goes and organizes National Prayer Breakfast, a lot of congressmen get involved in it. And the longtime leader said, well, how do you explain who Jesus was? And he would use this crazy metaphor. He says, it's sort of, think about Hitler, but it's not Nazi. He says, think about Stalin. Think about Mao, communist, fascist. To him, he says, the bottom line is strength. And it always inspired me that there were a number of deeply conservative Christian group, the World Magazine, which is a very right-wing Christian magazine, said, we don't like you saying that you understand Jesus by looking at Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. That's the bad metaphor. That's not the metaphor for the Christ that we know. So Russell Moore is holding out on that. That said, I think there's been a terrible mistake in the secular media. And it, you know, God bless Russell Moore, because that's, that's a brave thing he's doing. But they're elevating him as if this is a real debate, as if this wasn't a struggle that happened in 2016. His side lost. Listen, my side lost. Right. Yeah, exactly. He is very much like you, you're not sitting They're not having you on saying, well, will the Republican Party go Reed's way or Trump's way? That, <laughs> that question is settled. Right? Right, right. And I think I think because the political media is more uncomfortable talking about religion, they like it when someone like Russell Moore comes and sort of represents, you know, he's dignified, he's an intelligent guy, he's a thoughtful guy. They sort of present this as if, when will the Christians take back their faith? That's like saying, when are the Republicans, you know, when's Trump going to become presidential? When is when is it going to be the party I grew up with? It's Never. not that anymore, right? It changed. American evangelicalism changed. That's why we use this term Christian nationalism. And I think what people need to understand is that Christian nationalism is bigger than evangelicalism. It's bigger than whiteness. It draws on those. It's bigger than churchgoers. Christian nationalism doesn't require piety. I learned this reporting in Russia in 2014 when Putin, searching for a new internal, 2013, new internal enemy decided, well, you know, he says he can't use the Jews. That's the old Russian standby. Can't do that anymore. He decided to focus on LGBTQ people, right? And he invoked this kind of Russian Christian, Russian Orthodox identity and people loved it. And you would have thought this is the most pious nation in the world until you look at the numbers. 9% go to church. They love the idea of it. It's the same with Trumpism. Well, and remember, they were a defined atheistic country when they were called the Soviet Union. 
look, Soviet Union was also supposed to not be a nationalist country, but it was. It had a kind of Soviet nationalism that segued very easily into Russian nationalism. And then you can add this kind of manufactured ethnicity of Russian Orthodox, which most Russian people don't know anything about, in the same way that, you know, Mike Johnson aside, a lot of his Christian right colleagues, I remember years ago, this was the first time I learned this, this was years ago, uh, then Senator Sam Brownback, who was a very right-wing senator from Kansas, he was at the time the most uh, anti-LGBTQ senator, I think you could say. So I prepared, I went and I talked to scholars, I, Bible scholars, I got the original, you know, the chapter and verse and Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and so on. And I went to him and I said, so and I wasn't going to debate him. I just sort of wanted to understand how he thought the Bible said this thing that it doesn't say. And he goes, well, you know, I haven't really read all that. I said, well, but wait, you're, you're, you're actually legislating. this. says, well, how do you know? He says, Jesus just kind of put it on my heart, put it on my heart, not with a book. It's just a view that he held, right? So that you have, that's Christian nationalism. Jesus just kind of put it on my heart. I remember a pastor I encountered in Pennsylvania uh, talking about Trump's kids in cages policy. He says, I think Jesus would have done that. And it just blew my mind. I said, can you show me? And, and he says, well, it's not really in here, but I know it. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So let's take that because, you know, it's there's there's a big crossover with Christian nationalism, with evangelicalism, with MAGA, with QAnon, all of this stuff. Right. Fox News and Tucker Carlson. And, and you know, it's this disdain, dislike, even hatred of the quote unquote other. But they wrap all that, Jeff, in this idea that we, the Christian nationalists, are under attack that they're coming for us when I got to be honest with you, maybe I'm wrong, but like, if you want to preach in your church, like that's literally your God given, right? Your American, right? But like, how about this? Leave the rest of us the hell alone. I mean, there you see something again, you know, something old made new, right? The idea of the persecuted Christian. And that goes back to a time when evangelicalism was a much smaller faith. It wasn't as dominant in American Christianity. The big mainline churches, the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church, those were dominant and those were dominated by very educated, often Northeastern folks. And so you'd have an uneducated, maybe Southern pastor and he felt persecuted. He felt pushed out of it, right? And there's plenty of scriptural basis because of the persecution of early Christians by <laughs> Romans to sort of say, oh, you know what? You know you're doing your faith right when you're persecuted for it. That's how you know you're, you're doing it right. So then you saw a whole industry sort of build up of like, let us tell you about the worst thing that's happening in Syria, the worst thing that's happening in Iran. And bad things do happen to Christians in those countries. That's, that's true. But it creates this imagination of Christianity, the largest and most powerful religion in the world, as everywhere under attack. And then you can fit any villain into that scenario. Well, and then you have the 
I don't like how you live your life. I don't like the culture. I don't like the social pieces of it. I don't like this. I don't like that. I'm going to go tell you how I believe you should live your life. I'm going to tell you how I believe the country should be ruled. And when you disagree with me, that's my persecution. Yeah. Although, you know, I think it's important for us. And I, I actually think as we strategize and think about how do we push back against this, it would be easy to say, hey, look, you do your thing. I do my thing. But we have to understand what Christian nationalism, how they view it. They view our thing as the secondhand smoke that is poisoning them. So you see big megachurches that do something called spiritual mapping, where they go around and they march around the city, Colorado Springs, and they pray in front of you know a strip club or a gay bar or something like that, because they believe, and, and, I'm, and let's take them seriously, they believe, they're thinking, oh, this creates a culture. And if that gay bar is there, it's not just they're doing their thing. That is actually exuding you know, it, it's a little bit like the anti-vaxxers idea that the vaccinated are somehow shedding poison that's going to... Right. There's this radioactive decay going on. Radioactive is a really sort of good metaphor because I think the, the other thing that people misunderstand, they think of fundamentalism as an old-time religion. It was never an old-time religion. It's coined in the early 20th century. And it comes from this idea in the age of science. People are looking at saying, oh, so this is how electricity works. If you've ever been to a church where, you know, you put your hands in the air and you lay your hands on someone, that comes from late 19th century people saying, oh, well, you know, if Ben Franklin flies a kite and electricity comes down, the Holy Spirit must work according to scientific principles as well. And I can summon down the Spirit and pass it on to you. So that radioactivity is coming from, it's taking a scientific fact and making of it a theological metaphor, which then becomes a justification for lining up with guns outside a school library that's having a drag story hour because you think that that is actually threatening your life. You know, we went to a church for years, right? And it was Methodist. It was a great church. All our friends went there. The pastor was excellent, very well educated, really good, right? Really good from the altar. And I always found something, Jeff, that I could take away in my personal life, in my professional life, whatever it was. But I'll tell you, and I was probably reflecting the the depth or lack thereof of, of my faith was that when he moved on to bigger and better pastures and they replaced him with somebody else who wasn't, frankly, as charismatic, I was like, eh, he's all right. He's all right. And so you see that that charisma is a key part of it and the willingness to be that charismatic. And the ability, I guess, too. And you talk about, you know, Trump is just, you know, Jimmy Swagger or Jim and Tammy Faye or Jerry Falwell, right? Or the Righteous Gemstones or Bob Tilton or Robert Jeffers, right? Like they're all the same guy for the most part. The difference is, I think, in liberal churches, you will sometimes encounter a charismatic preacher. Yeah, Martin Luther King, a charismatic preacher, right? And the white liberal church, it's not structured. In right-wing churches, there is a structure of charisma such that a person who is not even terribly charismatic can fit into it. I think of this Pastor Hank Kuhneman I mentioned in Omaha, Nebraska. I don't know if his hair is dyed black. It looks like a Lego hair capped onto his head, and you know he's dressed like a 1970s swinger. Robert Goulet or somebody? Yes, exactly. <laughs> he looks ridiculous, but he is performing charisma. He comes out on that church. He's a white man. And he says, I used to be stiff and uptight. And he does like a white man voice. And he says, but then I went to North Omaha, which is a black part of Omaha. 
and they taught me to preach. And now he starts saying that he, as a white guy, is in fact a black man, right? And he's doing this minstrel act, this blackface routine of blackness, but it is performing for a lot of the white folks in that audience is performing one, it's doing a couple things. It's entertaining. He is jumping around the stage, right? It's also inoculating them from their own fears of racism. And then he's backing it up. And here's the thing I'll say about this is that church was incredibly entertaining. At one point I'm sitting there and I, he knew I had told him I was coming and he starts preaching against me from the stage. And he says, I know there's a reporter out there. I hope you're having a good time writing your lies. And he's shaking his Bible at me and everything. And the truth is I'm having a good time because the music is fantastic. It's really good. And the energy is good. And people are dancing. And the message is full civil war. He, he wasn't beating around the bush at all. We're going to fight a war and we're going to win. And he did not mean it metaphorically. That's exciting too. I mean, that kind of the final battle, which is, of course, what Trump keeps invoking. Every time he says this is, you know, the final battle, we, we got to remember that's left behind. That's apocalypse now. That's the charisma of this is it. It's revelations. Yeah. Re revelations is an exciting story. You know, running the synagogue, the synagogue maintenance committee, not so thrilling. Right. I mean, look, water into wine. Pretty cool. Pretty good. Pretty but... good. But. Right. Is it as good as Revelations and the Beast and everything else? No, it's not that exciting, comparatively, I guess. So take us through, Jeff. Now, how should we look at this? Because, you know, the the one thing that I've been doing a lot of reading on this over the past couple of months is how much of it politically really goes unseen. It's hiding in plain sight, I should say, which is for the layperson who is not a member of an evangelical church who's not a very conservative slash religious Republican. Look back, you know, a month or so to Trump's win in the Iowa caucuses, right? Why doesn't he need a ground game? Because he got all the churches to do it for him, right? And and just so take us through in your experience a little bit of the frankly hyper organized nature of this. I'm going to call it a community because I'm not sure what else you'd call it. Movement, maybe. I remember years ago, and this is pre-Trump. I was approached by some uh, organization and they wanted to make a, a left liberal national political religious organization. And they had, they had raised some money to start things off, you know, just a little seed money. They have $300,000. And at the time I had just come from visiting what was ranked as literally the 99th biggest megachurch, not the biggest, the 99th biggest megachurch. They were taking in $300,000 in the collection plate every Sunday. And I thought this scale, they have no idea of the differential of this scale. I think there's also those people look at these numbers and they say, well, you know, evangelicals are not a majority or anywhere near it, right? Maybe 20, 20 some percent, right? Um, depending on how you count it and depending on how you count whiteness too, which is, I think, evangelicalism is not just white. And there are black evangelicals who are very drawn into that right wing movement and, and Latino evangelicals and Asian evangelicals, Asian American evangelicals. But then you have that larger pool, but that smaller pool of 20 some percent. My God, you got folks tithing 10%. I mean, let me ask you, did your family give 10% of its pre-tax income to that Methodist church you went to? I mean, that's a lot. There's a significant number of people who really are doing that and are putting that money into it. But it's also, even these most militant, these militia churches, the churches I mentioned, they have, you know, they got Tuesday's new militia recruit training night. 
But Wednesday, of course, is the men's group where you get together and you have this sort of sensitive meeting and fellowship. they've got- they have fellowship. They do all kinds of things. They have food pantries. If you're part of that community, they will take care of you if you're part of that community, right? That puts a motivation into that base, which is, I think, you know, you from your side as a, you know, political strategist and thinker sort of know that uh, I think the press is only focused always on sort of swing voters as opposed to can you get in Iowa? Who needs swing voters in Iowa? You need to get that base out. There's another element to that, though, too, that I think that goes way, way back. And you said hiding in plain sight. And I think this is sort of important, is writing about the sort of the history of the modern Christian right. People say, oh, does it begin in 1980 with Ronald Reagan? Or does it begin in 1972? Does it begin with Roe v. Wade? Does it begin with segregation academies? I argue it begins in 1935, which is when... You start seeing the National Association of the Manufacturers, big steel, big corporations deciding that they're so distressed with FDR's New Deal that they have to turn to God for help. And that's when you start seeing this organization of these sort of elite kind of Christian nationalism. And out of that comes a lot of the early anti-labor legislation, um, the legislation that actually fundamentally undermines the kind of organization that a liberal or a left party could count on. So if we say evangelicals are only 20-some percent, how much is organized labor? It's a lot, lot less than that, right? It's been gutted over decades and decades. And also, not only has it been gutted, but also, you know, there's a reason why they called them, you know, Reagan Democrats in 1984, which was that, yes, they might have been proud union members, but maybe they were, I want to say maybe they were more socially, but Almost assuredly, Jeff, they were more culturally conservative than, you know, your average New York liberal, if that makes sense. And so Reagan gave them a place that didn't judge them. Right now, there's a difference between not being judged and giving anybody a free pass to do whatever they want. But again, this is where you started to see, I think, that that traditional. Yes, they gutted unions, but then. There wasn't a corresponding and this is purely political. There doesn't appear to be have been a corresponding effort by the Democrats or the Democratic Party to say, OK, if we don't have them as union members anymore, where they're just easy for us to go pick up. Right. They never did the work to keep them. And that's a whole other discussion we could get into. I mean, that gets into a whole history of labor history. Did they do the work and they just didn't do it as well? I mean, they lost. I, we, we, we agree on that. Right. But I think, you know, that element of it, which is also sort of the growing and this is where the, the the history of race and religion becomes important and the identification of Christianity for a lot of white folks with whiteness. And here's the catch on that. The folks doing that, you go to these militia churches, they're pretty diverse churches. And I'm guessing you're white, you went to a Methodist church, I'm guessing it was mostly white. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's Liberal churches historically are far more segregated than these mega churches and so on. So you're going to a church, and I saw this at any number of churches, where they'll have someone preaching openly that Black Lives Matter is demonic and, that, and, and this kind of thing, and it's more diverse than the liberal church down the street with a Black Lives Matter sign on it. And this is what, you know, as mentioned before the show, a historian named Anthea Butler in a little book called White Evangelical Racism. She's a historian of the black church, and she has this idea that I think is essential to understanding what I think is like the, maybe the, the most dangerous allure of fascism right now. And she calls it the promise of whiteness. The promise of whiteness is an idea 
it's a sort of a simulated ethnicity that can absorb non-white folks. It can say Trumpism in some ways sort of washes you and the broad whiteness of MAGA. And that maybe has something, part of something to do with the fact that, you know, we now we see some polls Trump pulling ahead amongst Latino voters and getting, you know, historically high numbers amongst black voters. I think if you try and explain that without religion and without Christian nationalism, you're just missing the boat. Yeah, well, because, again, the Latino population and the African-American population, again, I think probably more socially conservative, but also more culturally conservative and more church going, right, than the average, well, than me, right, which isn't saying much, but that's the truth. And we talk about community, right? Much more, you know, communities, families live nearby, maybe families live together. You all go to church together. You're all praying together. You're all being prayed to, right? You're all being discipled together. And so it's not surprising that if it's, you know, one guy goes to church and says, hey, I really, you know, we didn't go to this place before. Maybe we went to the Catholic church for years, but I just went over here and this is really great. And now you bring your brother, your mom, your kids. And before you know it, the one guy who left the Catholic church for the evangelical church is now 20 people. And here's the other part is, you know, they're going to vote at a hundred percent rate, something crazy, right? They're, they're going to turn out. They will show up. Right. Exactly. But I would add to that too. Another big piece of the puzzle is the right-wing Catholic movement, which is, has grown. And I'm not talking about, you know, pro-life Catholics, traditional pro-life conservative Catholics. I'm talking about Trump Catholics. And I got an intimation of this years ago. There was something called created called the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. It's not the National Prayer Breakfast. This is back in the Bush years. And I remember speaking to the organizer, Austin Roos, and uh, he said they were inviting George W. Bush, then president. He said, but they're not inviting Ted Kennedy. And I thought that was surprising, you know, as a, one of the most prominent Catholics. And they said, no, we think of uh, Bush as the first Catholic president. And I was like, oh, so by Catholic, you mean the right politics. And we see this as a really growing, very angry movement in the United States that rejects Pope Francis, rejects his authority. We see American bishops and almost open rebellion against him. But we also see it drawing on real intellectual heavyweights. Amy Coney Barrett, you know, most of the Supreme Court. And there's a whole host of scholars out there doing the heavy lifting of imagine what does Trump to look like? How do we think of something called the common good, which sounds nice until, you know, you start thinking about who's who's good. <laughs> yeah. Who's, who's good. good. Who's it good for? Yeah. Well, and you see like a Steve Bannon, right? He's regularly on the Catholic, this uber Catholic, arch Catholic, maybe, you know, bandwagon. Yeah. And I think that's another part of the story. Look, I'll, I'll call out another uh, journalist who I think is terrific. Catherine Joyce, who's done some really good reporting for Vanity Fair and Salon on the Catholic right. And I think Catherine's reporting is incredibly important. And it's hard to get the pickup because most of the secular media still thinks, oh, Catholics are basically blue collar liberals, which is kind of crazy. And Joe Biden's Catholic. So yeah, and Joe Biden's Catholic. So that must be that, right? And you know, without paying attention to the fact that Trump is leading Biden and amongst blue collar white folks, what insane percentage to what, right? You know, the blue collar is not that democratic base, but also thinking of Catholicism as intellectual and therefore not part of this Christian right. But hey, we're just talking about Russell Moore, who used to be part of the Christian right. Very bright guy, an intellectual, a thinker, right? There's a lot of sort of secular assumptions that kind of proliferate in the blue bubble that just make this stuff grow. And I'll tell you, you go out to those churches, they love talking 
about how they are talked about in secular circles, right? And again and again, mainstream media folks putting their foot in their mouth, getting fundamental facts wrong and confirming for them their idea that somehow they're persecuted. And then Trump comes along and he says, you know, they're coming for me because I'm coming. uh, They're only coming for me because I'm standing in between you. They understand that as a religious statement. That's a religious statement. You know, he is their champion. He is their David. You know, as you probably deal with it more than, well, we probably both deal with it a lot, which is if you are someone who is a young person who went to a good high school in a an affluent suburb who then went to a mid-Atlantic slash northeastern liberal arts school and then went to Medill for your journalism degree, then went back to D.C. and now go out to Iowa every four years to basically, you know, stare at the Iowans with a hairy eyeball. It's not surprising that you're not going to get it. It's not surprising, but it's not excusable at this point either, I would say. There was some years ago, Nicholas Kristof, and good for him, the New York Times columnist, good for him, he finally noticed, he wrote a column saying, you know, I've noticed that uh, here in the New York Times uh, newsroom even that there are a number of Pentecostals right here in the New York Times newsroom. Well, no kidding, Nicholas, because that's probably the biggest concentration of Pentecostals in the United States. That's a huge population. It's always right there with you, and folks aren't paying attention. And I think, you know, even on elite college campuses, as uh, I, I know conservative Christian students sometimes are frustrated by the assumption that they must be secular and liberal, right? And this imagination that they're not there, it's always been there, as you said, hiding in plain sight, partly through assumptions of looking at this thing, not in terms of broad American culture, but as a voting block that comes out every four years. And that's all we need to know about it. No more than that. Well, and as we start to think about this and look forward a little bit, Jeff, which is, as you know, with fascists, authoritarians, they always tell you what they want to do and what they're going to do. And evangelicals do the same thing. They tell you what their worldview is and how they believe the world should operate. So it's a combination of, like they used to say with Trump, take them seriously, not literally. Well, you should probably take them both. Because here's the thing if someone is willing to, take the shortcut, I'm going to say this, and I might be inartful in it, of I'm a person of faith who hasn't studied the scripture, but I've been stamped by Jesus and Jesus tells me X. If that's all it took you was to say, I've been stamped by Jesus and now I believe in dominionism or whatever the thing is, you should take it seriously. If you're willing to tithe 10%, go there every Sunday, send your kids to Sunday school, do the fellowship, listen openly and clap when you hear remarks about civil war, you should take these people both seriously and literally. Absolutely. And, and you know, not just Sunday, but Wednesday, Saturday, and, and, and maybe every school day, right? And I think about that church I mentioned in Northern California, and that church has become a destination church for figures on the right. General Mike Flynn, Candace Owens, all these kinds of influencer characters make this pilgrimage out to Yuba City California to right north of at, Sacramento. Yeah. yeah, north of Sacramento. I mean, this is you know out there in the orange groves, but they all go out there and they make these appearances at this church. It sort of made its name during the pandemic for not closing its doors. Well, let's take them seriously. They've got their swords, right? But what do they say they want to do? They say they want to have executions. They say they want to have a Guantanamo for journalists. I mean, they openly say this. They say this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of hangings. They believe in hanging as the method. You know, there's a viral meme that people may have seen of them presenting Mike Flynn with a customized AR-15. 
I remember sitting in that church and, and I came out of it and there was a, a young youth pastor who he understood that things were a little bit extreme. He was a protege of another national pastor named Dutch Sheets, who was part of that kind of Trump world. But he says, look, you know, there's basically the war side and, and the peace side. And you got to have them both. And this church is, he says, this church is like the Texas of faith. He says, but if you want to stay in California, I was traveling. He says, I can give you a row of militia churches all down the coast. We can just take you right down to the border and you can go from church to church to church and see how they're arming up. Those are the churches that would let me in. I think in Nevada, uh, I visited a January 6th insurrectionist and uh, she wouldn't tell me where her church was. Her church was a secret, you know, so we're not letting, we're not letting any writers come. So again, you know, no real shooting so far. Maybe there never will be one, but I do think we take them literally, they're doing acts of violence. That border caravan that just went down to Texas, this is a game of chicken. Yes. And it is a game, right? Just like Russian roulette is a game and nobody gets hurt until somebody does. And I think it's even worth paying attention to that that's part of the theology, that there's a sense of like, let's keep pushing this to the brink and put it in God's hands. And when the firing starts, well, hey, we waited. We didn't just go marching right out. We were there and then somehow the fight, that must be what God wanted, just like on January 6th. So as we wrap up here, Jeff, what else in your work are you looking at? What else in our sort of now we're about nine months from Election Day. It's hard to believe, right? Just feels like a year ago. Now it's nine months. What else are you looking at that you think our listeners should know? I think everyone's got Trump exhaustion. Um, and I think the, the deep temptation is to say we already know what he is. But, you know, one of the arguments I make in the undertow is if you look at Trump in 2016, what he was peddling was something like the prosperity gospel. We're going to keep winning and winning till you get tired of, of winning. We're going to make you rich. 2020, it was a kind of conspiracy narrative. It was QAnon. It was a, a kind of a, a secret gospel. This is a, a, an old heresy called the Gnostic gospel. But 2021 changes it. And Trump has been doubling and quadrupling down ever since. Now we're in the age of martyrs and the age of martyrdom. That's a mutation that brings us closer to the convergence of Christian nationalism and fascism. As that happens, we're going to keep seeing escalations. And here we are at this point where people are turning away thinking we know what Trump says. But consider, of course, you know, the polluted blood, right? He's going to keep moving like that. That's a theological statement. That's a Christian nationalist statement. The anti-Semitism of Trump has vermin. Vermin. But even deeper, his first speech after the indictment, and he's been doing this since, he says, we're going to uh, drive out the globalists, chase out the communists. And it's two versions. That's two gospels. I can't remember which one from the New Testament. One written, the moneylenders. We're going to drive out the moneylenders, chase them out, right? And it's to make clear that that's where it's coming from. So you go into the right wing sphere and like the real hardcore anti-Semites, they hear it. They're like, wow, he just said it. But he's done something else because if you want to pretend that globalist doesn't mean Jews, you can, right? You can buy into that and so on. And so now he's sort of harnessing that potent old protocols of the elders of Zion kind of anti-Semitism and revamping it. But then on the other side, you've got the Turner Diaries, right? So it's all coming together. It is. And I think this is what we need to understand fascism is, is fascism and any kind of successful social movement is a convergence of a lot of strands that don't normally talk to each other. And the one thing we didn't really talk much about, but I would urge people to check out is uh, 
all the planning that's being done for Trump too, and I mentioned something called Project 2025, the Heritage Foundation is leading on this. There's a whole nother, there's a competing vision of this stuff too. But you see here, you see Christian nationalist groups like Alliance for Defending Freedom teaming up with uh, formerly libertarian groups, teaming up with business groups and so on. All these folks, that old, there's an old model in American politics of business conservatives, social conservatives. That doesn't mean anything now. It's the convergence. It's the Turner Diaries, the anti-Semites, and the Republican Party's making a big play for American Jews. They don't, they can't win them, but they can get a lot more of them, right? At the same time, and I think that convergence, because the good news for me always is where there's a convergence, there's fault lines. That means you have unlike groups sitting uneasily together, and we can push that coalition and make it wobble and maybe make it crack. Amen to that. And I've written some about that as well. Jeff, where can we find you if you still dare to tread on social media and where can we find your work? God help me. I'm still on that awful thing that Elon Musk maintains <laughs> in Blue Sky. But the main thing is the undertow scenes from A Slow Civil War, which is coming out in paperback and I'm getting out on the road. I'm getting to get to go, this time to go to a lot of red states, which is really where I want to go. And I talk about this because there I go to the cities People are like, are you sure this is really a big deal? People are still saying that. You go to Texas, they know what's, what's happening. They know what's going on, right? As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, at Reed Galen, on threads and Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP, and at Substack, the home front. Jeff Charlotte, thanks for coming back. Thank you, Reed. Take care. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.